Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. The double figures and thinking, uh, you know... Uh, and it dawned on me that this would be a lot easier if I was a polygamist. <laughs> you know? Those guys have it easy. If I was a polygamist, you know, I could fill this place with, like, siblings, probably. <laughs> There's people I've met up in Utah who uh, are members of groups where people have more wives than there are people in this room. They've got huge families, so that's, I suppose that's an advantage of polygamy. We might as well start with a positive. Uh, you don't shit your pants when it comes to your book launch. <laughs> but there, are, there is a flip side. Um, you know how families drive us a bit nuts? Like everyone's family drives them a little bit nuts. Uh, it's kind of their job in a way. If you've got a really big family, then you're liable to be driven really, really crazy. And that's kind of what I found when I went to Utah, uh, behind the sort of well-scrubbed corporate Mormon facade that you find up there. There's a lot of crazy going on behind the scenes. It's like a, it's like a, a surprise party. You know, you go up and wandering around and it looks fine. All the furniture's in place, nothing to see here. And then suddenly the polygamists pop up from behind the sofa Hello! Some of us are completely bananas. I'm paraphrasing, you know, but... So I said, yes, I can see your bananas, come out from behind the sofa, and I'll put you in my book. And that's pretty much how this book came together, this one that you should buy, with a, with a shiny cover. So l let me give you an example of bananas. Um, Paul Kingston. Uh, that's his name, Paul Kingston. He sounds like an ordinary enough guy. Um, could be like a teacher, a plumber, male nurse, burger technician, fluffer, anything. You know, just an ordinary working Joe, right? But there's nothing ordinary about Paul Kingston. Um, for a start, he's a prophet. He's, uh, he's the leader of a cult called the Order, which is said to have 1,500 members, although some people think the number's a lot higher. Um, and he's the guy I was talking about. His followers say that he's got between 40 and 50 wives. Like he could fill this place with, you know, at dinner time. Now, I don't know how you stay sane with 40 or 50 wives. And, uh, and I should say, though, everything I'm going to tell you right now about Paul Kingston uh, comes from very good sources. It comes from people who uh, were former members of the group people who have, uh, were born into it, have lived there for like 20, 30, 40, 50 years, some of them. And some of them uh, grew up with Paul Kingston and are, are even related to him through either marriage or through blood. So this, this, is, this is good stuff. Um, now, all right, 50 wives. Now imagine how many kids he's got. In fact, let's guess. We've got uh, Paul Kingston is one of seven brothers, so they're all full brothers um, in that they've got the same mother and the same father. Uh, and these guys, these seven guys, they wield a lot of influence in the order in this group. Paul's obviously the top dog because he's the prophet, but they're, they're all polygamists, seven men. How many kids do you think they've got? I, I'll help you out. The, the age range is sort of between sort of early 40s and maybe up to 60. Seven polygamous men. Anyone? <laughs> Half a million? Yeah, I, I, hear, I hear like guesses like, you know, ooh, 150. Because you think like, you know, seven families with 150? More, right? 
It is, right. Very, very good. It's you were right on the on the nail, Joan. That's because I'm the oldest one. <laughs> You're a polygamist. It's uh, between 650 and 700, they reckon. Children. Um, and uh, Paul Kingston being the top dog, being, you know, he's the big kahuna, he's the prophet, he's got the 50 wives. He's said to have between 250 and 300 just Paul Kingston. Which is amazing. I mean, 300 kids, that's like a birthday every day. That's jelly and custard and candles and party hats every single day. But the thing about this that, that amazes me is that, I'm guessing, but I, I would reckon that until I just mentioned Paul Kingston, this guy with like this giant family, most of you never heard of him, right? But there's a guy with 50 wives and 300 kids that we never heard of. And you drive 10 hours and, and that's where he lives. He's right there. And I think the reason that, that is, is because lately what's happened is we've been given this sort of perception of polygamy um, through the TV. You've probably seen uh, Big Love, a lot of us. Uh, that's a guy with uh, three wives and he runs a business. And uh, it's all quite sort of conservative and, you know, nothing too drastic. And then the next show is Sister Wives. Same sort of thing, you know, he's got like three wives, he's, he's brought another fourth one in, he drives around in a Lexus, he's a businessman, you know, it's, it's kind of acceptable and that's what the polygamist lobby would like you to think. They'd like you to think that that's what polygamy is, it's consenting adults bringing in a couple of extra wives, um, no problem here, you know, it's fine, I mean, if the gays can get married, why can't we? All that, and I think, you know, good argument. Why not? I make it in the book. Um, I think they should decriminalise, to be honest. But that's not the full picture of polygamy. The full picture of polygamy contains all kinds of delights. You know, there's uh, forced marriages, happens, not that rare. Um, child brides, underage girls, child labour, all of this happens. There are some sad, sad stories in the world of polygamy. And you also get these kind of wacky prophet characters who've gone just way off the reservation. People like, who've got 300 kids, families big enough to swing elections, <laughs> and people like Paul Kingston. Now, I'm kind of picking on Paul Kingston a little bit, um, but only because he deserves it. <laughs> because... <laughs> Out of all of the prophets that are, that are up there doing their thing right now, profiting around, um, he's kind of the gift that keeps giving. I'll give you a couple of fun facts about Paul Kingston. One is, um, like it's Father's Day coming up, isn't it? Or is it today? No, it's, t it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. So, a lot of the kids, the 300 kids that Paul Kingston's got, a lot of them don't even know he's the dad. Uh, it's quite common within the order to conceal the identity of the father in order to protect the father. Uh, they even change the last names. So they muddy the trail. And by the time these kids discover that, you know, their, their dad is actually the prophet, you know, they're old enough for their hearts to be completely broken because he was never a father to them and they didn't even know. So uh, another fun fact about Paul Kingston, they practice incest in the order. And uh, when, I, when I say, like, you know, there's incest in the order. I don't mean they kind of tolerate it. It's like, it's okay. Like, you know, fine, you want to marry your sister. She is, she's kind of hot, you know. I'll just turn the other way. It's not like that. It's more like incest is recommended. It's the thing to do. It's preferable. God prefers incest. And the reason is they believe within the order, and I heard this from every single former member that I spoke to from that group, they believe that the bloodline of the Kingston family goes all the way back to Jesus. And so if you want to keep that bloodline pure, you know, you have to interbreed. You can't have it contaminated, you know. Incest is best. So, uh, obviously, Paul Kingston, being the top dog, leads the way. Uh, he le leads by example. He's said to have married um, a whole bunch of cousins. Uh, a handful of half-sisters and uh, I think you can throw a few nieces in there for good measure. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah. 
Um, here's a story. You, we know what happens when you have incest generation upon generation. Um, and this is a story that came from uh, Paul Kingston's half-sister. Uh, she's called Luann. She left the group um, like about, you know, nine years ago. But she was actually coerced into an incestuous marriage herself. So she told me the story that a baby was born in this group um, out of incest. This is not Paul Kingston's family, but an, another family. And this baby was in terrible shape. It was... Uh, it, it had no eyes. It had no ears. It had no arms or legs. It was just this quivering red blob that didn't quiver for very long. And um, the way that Luann described it, she said uh, it looked like a tomato. Well, she said tomato. <laughs> but I think she meant tomato. <laughs> and um, what they did, they took this tomato out into the backyard and buried it. Not a word to the authorities. Um, because another thing about the order is that a lot of the babies that are born in that group are delivered by other order members specifically to avoid reporting this kind of thing. So a lot of this hasn't come out. That's the order. Um, but the incest thing is just one of several out there beliefs that you find in polygamy. They're not all going to put you off your salsa in quite the same way. Um, for example, I, I once met a man who lived in a rock. Sounds like a limerick. Uh, <laughs> sounds like a dirty limerick. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's true, he did. He lived in a rock. Um, it, it, there's, I don't know if you've seen in the south of, uh, south of Utah, they've got this canyon country. If anyone's been there, you'll remember. It's absolutely beautiful. It's like, it's, it's Mars down there, you know, red rocks and desert, desolate, fantastic. Uh, and there's all these giant rocks just out there. And he lives in, he, he, what happened was, 25 to 30 years ago, he was driving along some sort of dirt track. He was a Mormon um, seminary teacher at the time. And uh, he heard a, a voice in his head, which happens a lot in Utah, I've discovered, <laughs> the, the voice in the head. And the, and the, and the voice said, uh, Bob, because his name's Bob. Um, the, the voice in your head doesn't get your name wrong, I don't think. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's ever happened. But Bob, see that rock over there? Not that one. <laughs> let, let, yeah, go past the shrub. Two stops. Yeah, that, that rock there. Go and live in it. Because when the world is destroyed, which could happen any time now, uh, you'll be alright if you're in the rock. So Bob thought, sounds reasonable. Um, sure. And he did it. <laughs> so he goes off, uh, gets a bunch of dynamite. And uh, he goes, goes up to this rock and he blasts out these caves. Um, Mormon fund fundamentalists with dynamite? This was before 9-11, obviously. Um, but he, he, he kind of blew up this rock and he kind of... There's all these caves now and uh, he built homes in them. And he had like three wives and like an army of kids, you know. And, uh, and he kind of colonized this rock. And now, today, Bob's passed away, rest his soul. Um, but his kids and, you know, various other people... They all, there's about 10 to 12 families living in this rock now, and they've got uh, solar panels on the top. They're completely off the grid. They get their water out of a well. They grow their own vegetables, and they drive around on little buggies. I lived there for a few weeks. It was, it was kind of a nice life. Um, so, rocks. Rocks, yes, rocks. Mormons are into rocks. I don't know what it is about Mormons and rocks, but they're into them. I've got, there's, there's another guy who's got this... There's another rock story for you. Um, this guy's called Chris Namelka. He's, a, he's one of these wacky prophet characters. And he, uh, he had, he's the proud owner of two rocks. Not, not giant, like... <laughs> not giant ones like Bob's Rock. But I'm talking about like, li little ones like this you can walk around with you. You know, like people had pet rocks? 
He didn't actually draw faces on them, but he was very fond of them, these rocks. And he, he said that they had magic, pa magic powers. These are magic rocks. Um, because the whole Mormon story is actually built on magic rocks. They don't really tell you that when you get to Salt Lake City. It's not kind of on page one of the Book of Mormon. This is all about rocks. But it kind of is. Because what happened was the founding prophet, Joseph Smith, got these magic rocks, put them together, and uh, stuck them in a, a hat and put his head in the hat. And apparently all these scriptures were revealed to him in this dark hat with a rock, because it was a magic rock. And uh, that's how the Book of Mormon happened. So... Uh, this guy, Chris Namelka, says he's got exactly the same rocks as Joseph Smith had. He said he actually stole them, I think. I don't, it's, it's shady where he got his, 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 the, these rocks from, but he says they're exactly the same ones. And they're called the, um, the Urim and Thummim. They're two rocks, Urim and Thummim. It's, it's actually easier to say if you haven't got any teeth. It's one of those things. My wife calls them the Eumathermans. <laughs> So I had to investigate this, uh, this, this rock thing. And uh, so the first time I met uh, Chris Namelka was with... Uh, I was introduced by one of his followers, one of his most devoted, hangs on his every word, you know, slavish followers, this sort of uh, middle-aged woman called Julie, who was, who was very nice, but a bit lost, I think. And, uh, and, and so she took me to go and see him one day, and one of our first meetings was in a cafe, and it's customary to read, and so I'm going to read a little bit about the time that I met Chris. Right. Yeah, so we're, we're at the village inn in Sandy, Julie, Chris and I, at a booth by the window looking at laminated menus on four mica tables. It all looks good this morning, all the glistening eggs and crispy hash browns, bathed in sunlight and muzak, the sound of Anita Baker singing Sweet Love. And Chris is beaming, his eyes as clear as the morning. You're going to have to forgive the accent. He doesn't sound anything like this, but... <laughs> I'm just going to fucking go for it, you know? So, Sanji. <laughs> you're interested in writing a book about polygamy, huh? Well, I can certainly help you with that. I can explain polygamy to you, how it got started in the Mormon realm. This has never been explained before in public except to a few people. Most people don't know. They haven't a clue. Fundamentalists don't understand it. The Mormon church doesn't understand it. How did Joseph Smith come up with the idea? Well, I'm going to tell you, and you're going to be the first one to understand and say, gosh, Chris, this is real. It makes sense. <laughs> he adores the sound of his own voice, Namelka. It's a bumpkins brogue, round and all shucksy, the kind that goes well with dungarees. <laughs> But he's precise. Everything is enunciated. All his K's and T's are hard. He likes to say, the fact is, a lot. And he refers to reality as though it's something only he has a grasp on. It's clear that he's here to teach me, not answer my questions. I'm the audience, a potential conscript, an ally in the media. So every fresh lesson comes with a, but wait, there's more, like a pitch man on a late night infomercial. You're the first one to hear this truth. It's a brand new kind. You can't get it in the stores. So dial now with your credit card number. So later that afternoon, I ended up in Chris's trailer, as you do, right? <laughs> when you meet somebody who might be certifiably mad over breakfast, definitely go to his trailer in the afternoon. <laughs> Take my advice. It's good. Um, so we're sitting there, and he's, he's uh, regaling, regaling us with stories. This is... Me and, uh, me and Julie on the couch, Chris is in his lazy boy and he's kind of kicking back and, and telling us about all manner of stuff, like he's got, uh, he's in touch with extraterrestrial beings, this is part of the key part of his philosophy. These magic stones lead him to, to these extraterrestrial beings and they just magic in front of him like sort of Star Trek and they, they tell him all of this stuff. He's also, he also knows a guy who's, who never ages and he pals around with him, he's a good friend of his apparently. Uh, and when I say never ages, I don't mean like, you know, he looks after himself and he uses good product, you know. Uh, I mean like he's 900 years old. So, because it's magic, right? This is magic rocks time. And so he's telling us these stories, and then he says, he offers us the opportunity to see his magic rocks. So obviously I'm like, yeah, go on, Chris, get your rocks out. Come on. Come on. 
I want to see them rocks. And he said, all right, all right. Look, uh, I've got them in the trailer. Oh, I'm not doing his voice. I've got them in the trailer, Sanji. Um, I can't do it. Uh, <laughs> um, but you can't see where I've hid them. So you've got, you and Julie have got to step out of the trailer. Oh, really? All right. So, so we step out. And, and at the beginning, I'm sort of thinking, this is a bit mad, isn't it? One minute, it's all Star Trek. The next minute, it's all, cover your eyes and count to ten. You know, it's in a secret place. But the thing is, Julie, bless her, is she's beside herself with excitement. She's pacing around, smoking cigarettes, going, oh, I can't believe it. I can see the Urim and Thummim. The Urim and Thummim. Amazing. It's like, God, oh, this is it. It's magic. Whoa. And I'm sort of going, yeah, yeah, you're right. Rocks. Going to see some rocks. This is going to be great. And then Chris pops his head around the corner after a while and says, uh, he's, I can tell something's gone wrong. He's looking at me like, I'm sorry, Sanji. The rocks are not there. <laughs> I'm like, oh, here we go. And <laughs> he said, uh, he said they were right where I, I always put them in the right place. And I said, no, go check again. You've probably just, your, your trailer's probably a bit of a mess. You can't lose the magic rocks, Chris. Come on, we're pleading with him. And he says, no, what's happened is the beings probably took the rocks away because, you know, and so he explained, he said, the thing is, the beings can hear us now, and they can see everything, you know, that's going on, and I think they've decided that you're not supposed to see the rocks today. So I'm thinking, God, that's ridiculous. I got so close to seeing the rocks. I'm feeling actually kind of disappointed, like a couple of rocks. The time came when I actually did see the rocks. It took about a couple of months before I could persuade him again. The beings said it, would o it was okay. I don't know what changed with the beings, but I think they came to like me in the end or something. Um, but I'm not going to tell you what happened. It was a fun afternoon. It was a fun afternoon, and I did see the rocks. I can't guarantee that they're magic, though. That's not a 100% guarantee. Um, the story I want to finish with is it's about uh, Angie. Um, and the reason I like this story is because it gives you an idea what it's like to actually go and investigate polygamy as a reporter. Um, because, you know, you sort of think that in a, in a book, you know, when I read other books, you just think, oh, you're just in a room with somebody and you interview them and that's kind of how it happens. It doesn't really happen that way. Let me tell you about Angie. In the middle of Utah, there's this uh, little town called Manti. It's small, picturesque sort of uh, village, really. Very nice. Famous, really, only for, for a couple of reasons. There's a massive Mormon parade every year. And uh, there's a prophet there called Jim Harmston. And he was the guy that I wanted to see. All I knew about him was he had maybe 14, 15 wives, something like that. And that he was paranoid and you know, secretive, like all the rest of them, and they would, you know, that was going to be my job of work. The only person I knew up there was this guy called Merrill, not new as in, you know, but I contacted him, and, uh, and he said, yeah, sure, come up, you know, I've got two wives, you want to write about polygamy, come and interview me first, and if I think you're all right, then, you know, we'll see, maybe I'll, interview to, uh, I'll introduce you to Jim Harmston, and that sounded good enough to me, so... I went up to Manti. Now, at this point of writing the book, I'd been on the road for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, writers don't have any money. You know, we were, I was on a budget. I was staying in shit motels. I've got Econo Lodge, Motel 6, that whole... That's what it's really like. It's not glamorous. So I'm, I'm, I'm going from, like, crap motel to crap motel. And when I got to this lovely picture postcard town, I just thought, fuck it, I'm going to treat myself, you know? <laughs> So, um, yeah, bed and breakfast. So I went to the bed and breakfast, and uh, there was this woman there. there was, I was the only guest, so the receptionist there is this bubbly woman called Trish. And uh, she was very excited to see me. I told her, like, oh, I'm doing this book about polygamy, and she was like, oh, I know all about polygamy. I used, I used to be a plural wife. That didn't work out. Anyway, you know... <laughs> She's good fun, and she, she got a bunch of toffee, and she gave me all this homemade toffee. She said, oh, help yourself to toffee. Got this big uh, uh, telephone directory out, and started going,
going through it and said, you want to talk to Jim Harmson, don't you? He's kind of tricky, but he comes in here a lot. I'll phone you when he does, shall I? And you can come down. And this person, he's in Jim Harmson's group, and... Uh, this person's in Jim Harmson's group, and this woman, she used to be, but it uh, didn't work out, but she's, I've got her number, hold on. So she's given me all these numbers, and I'm thinking, fantastic, I've just arrived. I'm always going to stay in a bed and breakfast from now on. <laughs> you know, I had one contact, and now I've got tons, and Trish is like, helping me out, doing me a solid. So, I love Manti. Uh, and the next day, it's the same thing. Manta is just brilliant. I go and see Merrill. He's my appointment, my one appointment. I go and see him, and we're getting on like a house on fire, me and Merrill. He makes harps for a living. Um, and he was showing me around his kind of like, uh, his workshop making harps, and going, oh, you're going to need them, you know, in heaven and all that. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he said, yeah, yeah. So we're sitting there and he, he says, I, I, I can see where you're coming from. I see what this, this is going to be a good book for our culture. You know, you're going to represent us properly and you don't have an agenda. You're not one of those Mormons. And I think I'm quite confident in introducing you to our prophet and leader, Jim Harmston. I'm sitting there thinking, this is brilliant. I should have come here at the beginning of the book. You know, all that time, you know, wasted. Anyway, I love Manti. And then the phone rang and immediately Merrill's face drops he looks very serious and kind of nervous and then he sort of runs out of the room and then by the time he comes back for that five minutes later he's got he's, he's got a face like thunder on him and he looks at me and he points to the door he's dismissing me he says you need to leave right now what, what, what happened you've been talking to a, a girl called angie you have haven't you and i said no i haven't i talked to somebody called trish you know, Trish, she's at the bed and she's got toffee at the bed and breakfast. <laughs> and he said, no, uh, that's not what I've heard. I've just been on the phone with Jim Harmston. And he said that Angie just called him and that you had a conversation with her last night and that you're not to be trusted. And you basically misled me the entire way. You're one of those journalists. You're going to do a sensationalist book about you're going to attack polygamy. You're going to attack our culture. And this interview is over. You need to leave. And I said, this, what the... Fine, I guess, yeah, what choice have I got, you know, probably he's kicking me out of his house. He's standing there, his wives, he's got two wives, they're both standing there like that. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, right, okay. So, so, I, so, so I left and I'm sitting in the car, kind of flummoxed and kind of pissed off and confused. And I'm thinking, oh, someone's lying to me here and I don't know who it is, because... I didn't talk to anybody called Angie, but maybe Trish's real name is Angie. Maybe that's what Trish's game is. She gets you in, gives you toffee, <laughs> and, then, and then stabs you in the back later. Maybe that's who Trish is. Really? No, it doesn't seem... But it could be. Maybe, maybe Jim Harmston's the liar. Maybe he called and he just made some crap up just to get rid of me. Maybe Merrill's the liar. Maybe that wasn't Jim Harmson on the phone at all, and he just made the whole thing up. And he just—that was his way of getting me out of his. I was completely confused. I had no idea. So I went back to the bed and breakfast, and I thought, I've got to talk to Trish. I've got to find out what's going on here. And so I went in, and she said, "Oh, hello, Sanjeev. Do you, do you want some more toffee?" I said, "No, I don't want any toffee. I feel like I'm in a fucking Kafka novel. I've been kicked out of this guy's house." I mean, it's all, it's all gone wrong. I've been, nobody trusts me in this whole group. I've got no chance. I had Merrill. At least I had Merrill before. Now I haven't got Merrill. I haven't got anything. I've got no polygamist. My whole book's fucked. It's all fucked. And, uh, and, 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 and she's saying, oh, look, you know, this is what happens in polygamy. You come digging around. I mean, things are going to happen. I was like, yeah, but Trish, to be honest, to be honest, he said that it was because somebody called Angie called. Angie is the reason and said that I had this big conversation with Angie and I'm not to be trusted something like that but I didn't I had a conversation with you unless your real name is Angie and she said no don't be silly I'm Trish I'm like oh so what's happening she goes well there is an Angie here and when we were talking she was on the other side of the wall she was in the kitchen uh, and she probably overheard everything that we were saying, you know, so when I'm giving you all those names and numbers, she probably overheard all that. And, um, well, Angie's, she's part of that group, and, you know, she's, she's got a very 
big secret and if that secret comes out uh, it could the whole th- it could bring down the whole thing so if Angie did call Jim Harmston he's going to pay a lot of attention to it and if Angie doesn't like you you're, you're out of luck so I thought right fine I'm, I've got to talk to Angie now like just give me Angie's number let me sort this out she's I can't give you Angie's number can I I mean but she's going to come here later this afternoon uh, probably about four hours so you know come back then I'm like four hours I'm thinking oh god what am I going to do so I, I walk around Manti kind of trying to look in shop windows and <laughs> enjoy the picture postcard village and I, I just I'm like a duck you know I'm like I'm all calm on the surface going oh Manti but below the surface my feet are paddling like this I'm going who's a who's a liar is Angie a liar maybe Trish is still lying what's going to happen what am I going to say to Angie what's going on is Jim finally four hours is over I get back to the bed and breakfast and I go in and there's Angie I confront her she's she's in the kitchen again and uh, I sort of tell her look what happened Jim Harmson apparently got a call that, from you saying that we had this big conversation and that you don't like me, you don't trust me, and now my whole, everything's ruined, this is a completely wasted trip, and I don't understand because we didn't even talk, did we? And she's not engaging with me at all. She looks, she's as cold as ice, this girl. She's like maybe about 25, 26. She looks straight through me. Everything I sort of ask her, she sort of denies. She says, I didn't make any call. I know we didn't have a, uh, have a chat, but who are you anyway to come in here asking these kinds of questions, doing a book about polygamy? What's all that about? You're just, I know you're just like all the rest of them. You're like one of those journalists. You've come here to, you know, write bad things about our culture. You don't understand it. You're going to come here for a few days and then you're going to be gone. Prove that you're different. So I'm kind of trying to, giving her my spiel, but it's not working. She doesn't believe any of it. Everything I throw out at her, she sort of bats it back, or bats it off to the side. And then after about half an hour of this, she says, well, I'm busy, you know, I've got to go. So, uh, so we're done here. I was like, yeah, okay, fine, you've got to work. Uh, tell you what, give me your number and we'll talk when, you, when, when you're not working, when you're not busy. And she said, I'm not giving you my number. I go, what about your email? Go, no. Alright, uh, how are we going to continue this conversation then? She says, well maybe if you, if you want to come back to Manti sometime, if I'm working here and if I'm not busy, then maybe I'll talk to you. I'm thinking, oh right, okay, great. Well, can I at least leave you my details? And, sh- and she says, you can do whatever you want. And she literally turns around, walks off. So I'm thinking, great. So I just left him my details, left him on the side, turned around, got in my car, went back to LA, thought, Manti's fucked. I was wrong about this place. Then uh, four days later, I got this flurry of emails, all of them from Angie. She's not as cold as ice anymore. Long, urgent, heartfelt letters. Um, she turns out she's a child bride, she used to be, of Jim Harmston. She was known as the prophetess. She married him when she was 16. He was over 42 years older than her. Uh, she'd lived there for 10 years. She had two kids with him and she'd had enough. She wanted to escape to California and she wanted my help. So if you want to find out what happens next, <laughs> it's in the book, the shiny book, which you can, which you can stroke. Thank you. Does anyone want to ask questions or should we just start drinking? <laughs> It's not legal. Yeah, I don't know. That, that it's, a, it's a good question because to some extent it is accepted. There's so much of it up there. It is against the law. Nobody really gets arrested for it. And I think the main reason for that is um, there's too much of it and that you can't go and just arrest God-fearing families and start putting them in jail because of... Uh, a polygamy law, it's going to go down terribly. They've tried this kind of thing before. 
they don't like it. But skeptics believe that the reason that sort of polygamists kind of get a pass when it comes to the law, because there are other laws like child labor and child brides and incest and things like that, that really just haven't been investigated. Uh, and I think a lot of people uh, who are skeptical of the authorities up there think it's because fundamentally it's part of Mormon history. The, their ancestors were polygamists. They, they're proud of their ancestors. Mormons are very, very, very into their history. They just kind of pick and choose which bits they want to go, go public with. So that's the belief. Start your fascination with <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> kind of happened by accident, to be honest. It's like I'm. Um, I think a lot of uh, English people, when they come to America, they they they're very they're fascinated by the religion, you know, because there's so much of it here, and it's it's so much more of a religious country, and there's all these religious adventures going on in these little pockets, and. You know, I, I, I like to write about subcultures and fringe groups and so on. So I'd done like a bunch of stories about pimps and, you know, people who kind of, people who we're more aware of. And I didn't realize until about 2002, 2003 that there was this population of 40,000 people uh, who were basically living outside the law. And I just found that whole concept kind of exciting. And, uh, and the fact that I could drive to them and explore them it was drivable, uh, and so it sort of began from there. Once you start looking under that stone, it, it doesn't stop being fascinating. Have any of the subjects, I know it's just published, but have any of the subjects had a chance to read it that are still polygamists and, and react to The current polygamists, no, they haven't got back to me. I've got a feeling that they've read it, you know, but... Uh, I don't know. I'm sure I'll hear from them at some point. I don't know if it'll be uh, a four-star review on Amazon. I've got, <laughs> I've got to say. But I have heard from a lot of the people who were former members of groups, particularly the Order. You know, I was talking about Paul Kingston and the Order. There's a, there's a, there's a section, and there's a big chapter on the Order in this book, and there's a family called the Tuckers, and the whole... Their, their lives have changed uh, through, through leaving the group, and they've always been very frustrated that nobody's really told the story of the Order properly yet. Um, and I'm proud to say that they think that their story has been told now. So... Uh, there was a recent Rolling Stone article, which was a, a, a good article uh, about the order, but it's very difficult to penetrate unless you've really been there and you've faced order members and you've started to kind of weave through what could be lies that they're telling you. And that's really where the story is. Why are they telling those lies? And it just takes a lot of legwork to get there. But there's been some very gratifying responses, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much. It, it's, it's, a, it's an ironic thing because you have like a, a culture, the polygamist culture, the, the Mormon polygamist culture is a lobby, it now has a lobby, it's had one for, for a while now, a group that kind of advocates the lifestyle, says it's good and it's American, it's freedom of religion, and they're trying to get it decriminalized so that it can be more accepted by society. But it's almost like this is a, a subculture that doesn't really want to be part of society. It's a separatist sub subculture. They, they want to define their, their uh, religious bubble in opposition to sort of Gomorrah outside. And so, yes, you do get that sense of like, you know, I'll, it, of comfort and security being part of a uh, a very sort of doctrinaire culture where the rules are laid down from on high by a priesthood council and you kind of don't have to worry about things anymore you know it's done for you I actually met um, a woman from 
San Francisco, she had a sandwich shop. Her parents were hippies. She was like super liberal. She was in her 40s, a businesswoman, went out every night, part of the kind of scene, I guess. Um, but she wasn't happy. And then it's the wildest story. Uh, a work crew started coming every day at uh, one o'clock every day to, to get their sandwiches and they just didn't seem like normal work crews. Turns out they were polygamists. Uh, they, they work in a lot of construction. They're very successful in that. And one of these uh, construction workers and her sort of had a thing and now she lives as part of that polygamist group on the border of Utah and Arizona in a polygamist bubble completely. So she's gone from one extreme to the other, but she told me exactly what you're saying, that there's a lot of comfort in not having to worry, not having... To, things like, she said, I don't have to be thin anymore. <laughs> because they wear those long skirts, you know, and they just, they have lots and lots of babies, and it's not about being glamorous and in and cool, and there's no makeup. And I think for her, at that point in her life, she could be part of a marriage, and there they, they were children around, and she didn't have to worry about how she looked, and the pressure was off. That said, small minority. One idea of a uh, small minority is, uh, so most of them are off the beaten path, there's no mainstream large city cells. Sorry, I don't understand. Large city cells. Where, where are they? They're, well, like in popular culture, we've got this idea of like the compound, you know, because you've seen that on Big Love, where everybody's a polygamist, like that, the example I was talking about just now, where it's a polygamist bubble, and you get some of these groups that are not many, handful of them, where they're, they're literally out in the desert and they've built their own community and everybody there is part of the faith, or... Is a, is, a, is a product of it, you know, they've rebelled against it or something, but they're a product of that culture. Um, and there are really no, no outsiders, it's, it's another world. And so there are a few of those, and Arizona, and that border of Utah, Arizona, and there's a, a, a compound in Texas as well. The, these are these kind of closed communities. But the, the order that I was talking about, Paul Kingston and the incest and all that, uh, they're kind of marbled in to the general population in Salt Lake City so and Salt Lake County, all that, that whole sort of area, you know, the north of Utah. And it's, it's, there's something sinister about it because they change their name so you don't know who they are. They, they lie reflexively about who they are, they say, because they, they have to, because it's against the law. But that culture of lying generation upon generation, you know, from, from school, they are taught, uh, this is something I explain in the book, that um, when is it okay to lie? When, when, it, when you have to protect your family, when you have to protect your faith. These are lessons that uh, I, I reproduce here because there was a very brave member of the order who's currently part of that group who smuggled out a lot of material, teaching material, and gave it to me. It's never been seen before. It's just evidence of wholesale indoctrination. So... So yeah, they, 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 they're sort of marbled in, and, and, and there's, a, there's a route that goes from Arizona through Utah up through Idaho, and that's kind of where most of them are, you know, if you could imagine a map, it'll be all speckled around that sort of area, uh, and then you've got a bit in Montana, and a bit in Texas, and I think there's a bit in Minnesota, so that's roughly where they are. Ah, yeah, three good questions. Well, uh, Centennial Park was a group that was uh, where that woman from San Francisco lived, right? I, I lived there for uh, a month and a half, then I went back and I lived there for another few weeks, and then I came back for, I think in total, probably about three months, I was living at Centennial Park. They were v very nice to me. They literally said, the keys are in the flower pot come and go as you please, you know. The, we reached a point with them where they kind of said, all right, you're in, you know. Come in, ask us anything. Um, join, come, go to church, 
you know, do whatever you want. I was literally having people over for chicken curry. It was kind of, <laughs> it felt quite normal after a while. So, so that was one, that, that was probably the group that I spent the longest time with. Um, what was the other question? Were they fascinated with me as, as much as I was with them? Uh, kind of no, because uh, I don't think so. I remember, I think, I think me showing up was very peculiar. Because I think what they're used to is uh, sort of us as a traditional American journalist from a sort of a, I don't know, newspaper or something like that to show up and be kind of, have some sort of Christian or Mormon extraction and those are the people that tend to be very interested in these groups and they usually work for a newspaper that might have treated them in one way or the other and I didn't have any of that backstory. All I had was, I was kind of a freak like them, you know. Like, they're like, oh, who are you? You know, you're this kind of strange sort of brown man with an unpronounceable name <laughs> and an accent that doesn't fit your face and we've never heard of you. You know, you kind of, where did you come from? Strange. So they'd ask me sort of like, sort of, they asked me a lot of questions, but it was all mostly about, what do you think about us? It was not so much about me. When, the, when they would ask me, like, they, they said that, what do you believe? That was, a, you know, it was very important to, to know what my belief was. And I said, well, I kind of don't, you know, I'm kind of an uh, atheist. And they were like, no. What do you believe? Right? Well, I suppose I've got to give them something. I'm, I'm a lapsed Hindu, you know, like my parents kind of supposedly Hindu. They weren't very interested in it, and I'm even less so. I went through a bit of a Hindu phase, you know, when you're sort of young and dreaming and lost and I was searching for something and I kind of didn't find it and ever since then I've been an atheist and that's just who I am. They're going, Hindu, Hindu, uh, is that Allah? <laughs> Nobody I met had, knew what a Hindu was. I had to tell them, I said, no, it's the one with loads of arms, you know? <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah, fine, okay. But... <laughs> But they liked the fact that I told them uh, my parents had an arranged marriage, and they liked that. They, they were like, oh, really? What, somebody else decided? What? Yeah, and I said, yeah, they didn't really get a lot of choice. And they go, we see, and that worked, didn't it? <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, worked, yeah. Well, here I am, you know. <laughs> Does that, was that answer? Yeah. No, not yet. I think I think they're probably. I can't I, I can't read their minds, but I think I, they're not going to like it. I think the, the first line of this book is I think the the title has already pissed off several million people because the sheer fact that I call it Mormon polygamy and there's a lot of people now sort of you know people who brave internet people who comment who say he's got his facts wrong there's no such thing as a Mormon polygamist Mormons aren't polygamists therefore the end and it's that's the Mormon church's stand you know that's what they're gonna say that's why they'll be upset any mention of Mormon and polygamy together it's like well we don't practice it therefore it's wrong but where I come from on this is uh, they don't own the word Mormon you know it's a, it's part of history it's part of culture it's Joseph Smith is a historical figure the Book of Mormon is a historical text we're all available we're all able to sort of interpret what Mormon means and Certainly, this culture of polygamy is in the Mormon tradition. It's the way that they used to practice it. These people consider themselves Mormons. They're, they've put their liberty on the line for their Mormonhood. And uh, I'm not inclined to take the LDS's church kind of line of like, we decide what's Mormon and what isn't. I think, well, no, you kind of don't really. You know, we all do, I think. Um. Although I haven't read the book yet, or read the ending or whatnot, I, it sounds like um, I, I think that where you're going with your opinion all this may not have pleased the Mormon Church or the polygamists that you interviewed and spent time with. Right. Did, did you give them the sense that you were going to write something positive or something that was... I wish you had, but you, you've written something that's very balanced to tell them who they are. Right. 
did I did I mislead them into a book that criticizes them? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it was one of those things that you kind of you walk a line with this sort of thing, you know. So I was very careful from the beginning to to when I first approached like the polygamist lobby, they were kind of the gatekeepers, the original gatekeepers. There's a group called Principal Voices that advocate for polygamy and decriminalization and all that. And they said that they have meetings with lots of uh, groups, they're in touch with lots of independents. And that they could put me in touch if they thought I was my intentions were true. So what I explained to them at that at that time, and that it was completely sincere, was uh, there's really n nobody's actually done this before. Nobody's actually gone and lived with polygamists before. They're treated as this sort of other, and you have this. Uh, it's like a boxing match, you know, they're both kind of, you've got a for and an against. And I said, well, nothing's really that straightforward, you know, the, the people who are against polygamy are saying a lot of things that are just, you know, that, that they have an agenda and it looks like, th th and they're hammering that agenda hard. And so they're, they're only saying the negative stuff and you're only saying the positive stuff and it seems that we're not getting a real picture and the only way we're going to get a real picture is if I get to spend a lot of time with people who are actually practicing uh, under the uh, guarantee that I'm not going to reveal their names you know, because I can understand that there's there's going to be blowback. This is a secret culture for a reason, and my my goal is not to make anybody's life harder, but just to explain who they are in the in the hope that we're really not that much different in the end. You know, we're families. We lead we lead our lives, and so on. And to some extent, that's what I found. You know, in Centennial Park, I was very much. I felt very much, they made me feel part of the family and I lived there for a long time and they were very open with me and uh, there was a lot of trust and it worked very well, you know, like uh, me and my wife went and celebrated 4th of July with them, we went hiking, we looked after the kids, you know, we played, it was f fun, you know. This was a fairly moderate family, they had like <laughs> only about nine or something, but small potatoes. Yes. When you begin writing a book, you have your own preconceived notions about a certain culture or a certain belief. Yeah. As a result of writing this book, uh, what's the greatest learning you came about? Any change, changes that you've noticed in that? Oh, that I I had I had a perception of polygamy before I before I um, explored it myself that it was uh, pretty much self-contained and that there were there were prophets and there were followers, and that you had groups that were prophets and followers. Not necessarily so. Polygamy is this kind of like sprawling diaspora of uh, independent families, where there's this thing in the Mormon religion uh, which has given rise to all of these sort of fundamentalist groups. Where there's a verse I'm, I, I can't quote it offhand, but it, it says that one day they will come someone, uh, one, the one mighty and strong is the, is the phrase, who will lead you into the promised land essentially and that one mighty and strong, that person, is the prophet to follow. Uh, and there's this uh, philosophy of like direct revelation in, in, in the Mormon religion. It's one of the reasons it's a growing religion and people are attracted to it because everybody's able, every guy is able to receive direct revelation from God. And so what you end up with um, is a lot of people getting these revelations, you know. <laughs> they, they're, you know, they're literally in the garden and they get a revelation, I'm the prophet. And bingo, my family and me, I need to get a couple of extra wives and we're going to have a church and it's just it's going to be me, the church of me. And there's a lot of that going on. So it's not always these uh, organized structures and compounds and that very cultish sort of uh, image that we have. I had a very cultish image of it, and that's only partly true. Are all of them religious, or is this just a way of life that's convenient for them, that they enjoy it? No, deeply religious. It's all about religion. It's one of those things that religion helps, the, helps them get through it. It's about the afterlife. It's about being a god in the next life and having your own planet. If that wasn't there, these wives would walk.
for sure. <laughs> Tim. Are there any modern strains of polygamy where they reject some of the more icky aspects like the incest and the child brides and things like that? And they want to say, you know, it's the new acceptable polygamy where it's just consenting adults and... Without the religious aspect? Without the religious, but without the incest... Without, without the corruptions? Gross. Yeah, like the, the, the sort of the, the big love family. You know, they're not, they're not bad people. Yeah, they do. They do. They do. There are these independent families who try to avoid groups because they can see that groups after a while become these structures of power in which people start controlling the others. There's the haves and the have-nots. You know, people literally have the wives and the power and those who don't who end up working for them. And that's a pretty common dynamic. And so there's a lot of people who reject that cult framework. So yes. Yes, basically. From concept to final Oh my God, that's a that's a saga. That is. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the very quick story. Uh, the the quick story is that this this story this this. Oh, from concept to final draft, how long did it take? Was the question. Um, if I just count the years, probably uh, five. That's a lot. That's a lot. Oh, it was not. It was. It was nothing but. It was nothing but. Like it was. I went on this roller coaster. The, from this book, essentially bookends like five of the most turbulent mental years of my life. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you how happy I am to be here. It's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it was a. It was a hell of a journey. It was like I. St I started this book. Uh, I did all the research for it, came back from Utah, all these stories in my head and got all my notes together and I, I couldn't be bothered um, with, you know, the internet and chores and stuff. So I managed to persuade my long-suffering wife to, to let me just go and have that dream thing and uh, her parents have got this amazing... Um, bar and grill with like lodging on, on the top and there weren't that many rooms there in this sleepy town up in Washington, Grand Coulee and uh, she said Look, they haven't got internet sorted out in those rooms and I thought oh perfect I'm going to do that then so I went up and, uh, and I was like their writer in residence and that's where I was started writing the book and all was well it was 2007 it was, I mean, everything was going great and, uh, and then I got a phone call because my phone was on, even though the internet wasn't. My phone was on, and I got a phone call from Bombay saying, do you want to be the editor of GQ India? From Bombay. A bloke that I'd never talked to before. It's the most random thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> What's going on? I was outside, of a, I was outside a bar. I was a, bit, I was a bit stoned, actually. <laughs> I'm just saying. I was not expecting this. And then I get this call, this guy with this accent saying, hey, how do you, what, do you, what do you think about this? You know, would you be up for it? I'm thinking, really, what? <laughs> no, no, I, <laughs> I haven't had any of this yet. So it was, it was mental, and then there were years in India that didn't quite go according to plan, let's say. I moved from Bombay to Delhi, all the time I had my book with me. And then... Um, I managed to finish it somewhere between Bombay and Delhi, and then uh, it was originally for Simon and Schuster. This will show you what it's like to be in the glamorous world of book publishing. It was originally for Simon and Schuster, and I thought, oh, that's great because they've got this big fuck-off building in New York, and you know, I get to go to the 25th floor and have lunch with someone. You know, because I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm Woody Allen, right? <laughs> <coughs> they, they dropped me like that. They went. Ugh. They dropped me in the middle of 2009 because 2009 was the annus horribilis of everything, right? Every, money was, everyone was fucked in 2009. I think even Simon, Schuster, Simon and Schuster. And, um, and they were cutting their lists and they said, you're, I'm sorry you're just the first time and, you know, we love the book but there's nothing, you know, bye. So I'm in Delhi and I'm sitting there thinking, India has been like a disaster. I think I may have even had Delhi Belly at the time just to <laughs> put an extra, for extra bonus, as they say. And uh, so it's been a crawl back from there, from the middle of 2009. Now I've got a new publisher, I've got a new agent. And 
Bit by bit. Bit by bit. So, are we good? Well, what's the takeaway on all this? I mean, is, is there some great evil go going on there in, in Utah? Some horrific story where women are just being oppressed and great numbers and children are being imprisoned and, and, and it's a catastrophe that you're shining some light on? Or is it just more innocuous than that and it's just a bunch of crazy people? No, it's not innocuous. No, it's not innocuous. Uh, a guy with 300 children, uh, many of them who don't know him, many of them born from incest, babies getting buried in the backyard, not innocuous. Nothing innocuous about it. Yes, there are aspects of this that is an absolute tragedy. Um, there's a lot of sadness, a lot of unhappiness in, uh, in the polygamy subculture because of this religious fundamentalist sort of separatist culture that, they, that they're in. They feel that they can't escape. So when you said, like, are children being imprisoned, it's not quite, you know, lock and key. And, and yeah, it's not quite lock and key. It's kind of the, the all, all the prisons are internal, you know. All of their, all their problems are sort of psychological. They're, if, you, if you grow up in a culture uh, like the Order, for example, it can be tremendously difficult to, to ever leave and get, get a grip of your life and, and, and see the world kind of a little bit more as it is rather than thinking all of them are evil and uh, I can never trust them because I will be doomed forever if I ever consort with people like us. Um, and that's a prison of sorts, you know. And when people leave, they go through several years of uh, uh, agony, really, trying to adjust to the world and realising how, how deluded they'd been and how misled they'd been and how exploited. So, yeah, there are, there, are, there are tragedies. It's not innocuous. It's not this fun and games kind of thing, you know. There are, there are places where polygamy kind of works, like The Rock, because it's, the people are nice, they're a bit more open, and they seem to have chosen that life a little bit more easily. They debate it a bit more freely. But the order is a very closed, secretive, and uh, there's a lot of scared people there. And uh, incest is widespread. You know, marrying your sister and is and, and having babies generation upon generation creates a lot of hurt. So, yeah. Sorry, bit of a bummer note to end on. Uh. <laughs> Paddy, last one. Okay. Do you have a hope that the book will, you know, obviously it's clearly shining light on some 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 things that are very, very dark and you are shining light on that? Do you have a hope that it may at some point provoke um, any right to light to be shown by, say, authority to try and to change some of the criminal aspects of which, you know, it sounds like we're not Yeah. What's going on? Um, yeah, I hope, I hope, I hope, you know. But at the same time, um, I did manage to actually speak to the Attorney General of Utah, Mark Shirtliff, on several occasions, mostly about this incest thing with the order, because he'd sort of made some uh, statements where he said he was going to um, prosecute. Um, and the, 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 I see the order, and I've described it, and I've got, I've, I, I give many reasons in the book as to why it's it's a, it's a dark force, and there's there's quite there's quite a lot of bad things happening there. We have a joke about a guy with that many kids and that sort of thing, but it's uh, it's it, it it needs to have a light shone on it, I think. But the trouble is, you see, this is this is one of the conundrums about um, about polygamy in Utah. What you've got is. Uh, on the one hand, I've got this guy whose name I can't reveal, but he, he gave me an enormous amount of material about the order. Uh, he wants his uh, father to go to prison. Um, he's part of that group, and he leads this incredible double life at great risk, you know, of, of losing his family, of getting beaten. Um, a lot of that happening as well. And... So he's taking all these enormous risks to give Mark Shirtliff, the Attorney General, as much evidence as he can to expose the bad guys, some of which uh, he's very, very closely related to. 
And uh, all of this evidence is piled up on Mark Shirtliff's desk and still not a single arrest. Incest is very, very easy to prove if you have a warrant. Very, very easy. It's a cheek swab. And then you're done. And uh, just by doing that, he can open up this group and force them to tell their story and force them into the light and uh, expose what's going on. But he hasn't. So, yeah, I, I hope that I hope that my book will have an effect. Who knows? I think every every author does. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming, everybody. Thank you. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.